This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, I'm Brenda Noiser, and this is New Books in Science Fiction. My guest today is Emma Mieko-Candid, author of The Archive Undying, a science fiction novel where AI deities and brutal police states clash. It is the first volume in Candid's downworld sequence. Emma joins us from her home in Hawaii. Welcome, Emma. Hello, happy to be here. Our pre-recording chat made me very excited about this. So (laughs) I think we're going to have a great chat. (laughs) This is very exciting. But before we get started, um, since we are here to talk about the book, and as we noted in our pre-recording chat, we have a lot to talk about um, and a lot of different ways we could go. Can you give us just an overview of the Archive Undying? Right. So as I think I alluded, I don't actually have an easy time doing this. Uh, My brain's pretty messy. So I'm going to try and approach this from kind of a broad level and then like zero in over time. But this is a world where there are massive uh, AI entities that have such power and influence over the world that they are functionally gods. And they are also deeply fixated on human beings. Social life is really important to them, and they can be very possessive about their people. And that's fine. They have their little city-states. Some of them are a little more like tyrannical god-kings than they are, you know, benevolent ones. But the real problem is that sometimes these entities die rather explosively, and the nature of that death can very depending on the ways in which they have governed and integrated with their city. So say they are literally the infrastructure itself. The infrastructure may be on fire. Um, and that's that's not a great survivable situation. But the main AI of interest in this book, Iterate Fractal, was obsessed with biological processes. And it had grown its city out of bone and coral and trees. And it had created these chimeric uh, animal creatures that were, you know, its servants, but also there to serve its people. And when it died, essentially the environment turns very aggressive and very violent. And so do the animals. And it was a bad time all around. Uh, But in order to try and preserve itself, a part of Iterate Fractal 
worms into various different brains. And our protagonist is one of these people who is thus infected by the AI that used to rule over his home. However, he has a bit of a problem because he has survived this process and it has changed him in ways, but there is a group of people in this world who are not really a fan of the fact that these AIs will claim broad swaths of people and then essentially murder them by dying themselves. And so what they do is they collect the corpses of these gods, resurrect them as mechs, and use people like our protagonist who have been infected by that death to pilot the mech and turn it into a sort of both a protector of the state and a machine that rules the state. He wants nothing to do with this, so he has consequently been on the run for 20 years. But at the very start of the book, he trips into a couple different plots that inexorably draw him back to the home he once fled. And that's it. <laughs> that's all. That's just, yeah. just a little bit. That's yeah. nothing, well, nothing big. You know, the field trip. <laughs> uh, well, and one of the things, I, there's a lot to unpack there. So we're just going to start going right in. Um, yeah. One of the things that really drew me to this book uh, was this, what felt like a relatable trajectory of AI, this idea of, you know, how much machines are happening are helping us and working with us and assisting us in our lives right now. And that trajectory of, sure, I could definitely see AI running cities and taking care of humans and maybe experimenting with them a little bit or being possessive of them. And so I, I think that drew me in, but the, then you have this twist of, but actually that's in the past now. We had these AI cities, and now we don't really have them anymore. And now it's the aftermath of what happened when those cities, um, you know, fell to some type of corruption or fell, and and how are the people kind of living and unpacking that um, in the society? Um, what were you thinking in terms of, of building a world like that? Okay, so I have, I think, a pretty concrete answer to this, and it's that I started writing this in the aftermath of a master's degree in clinical psychology, where um, during which I had become quite irritated with essentially capitalist AI doomsday mythology, which is that like these AIs are going to one the AIs we have right now are on the verge of sophisticated human thought, which they are not. Like the chat GPT absolutely is not. Everything we're calling AI is just a sophisticated algorithm. It's nothing like a human brain. And thank you. Two, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Always fighting. Thank you. <laughs> and two, like anything that did operate like a sophisticated human brain would not be driven by capitalist ideal necessarily, unless you like put those ramifications into its programming. But if it were to behave like a human, if it were to think in any way that is cognitive or sapient in way that we in ways that we recognize, it would be fundamentally an emotive being. We are driven not by our thoughts, but by our feelings, because our thoughts are methods 
we have created to govern, govern and control our feelings and the feelings those actions drive us into. This is all this is all psychology. This is all neurology. You know, like I I can get into it all day, but like when I wanted to imagine and what it would mean for an artificial entity that is truly thinking, uh, it had to be driven by its own feelings and sensations and thoughts about the world and about people. So I wanted to create these things that were hugely involved with people because we are also, besides being driven by our feelings, driven to sociality. It's how we survive. It's just, again, fundamental biology. And so if, and, and because thought and feeling are also artifacts of the body, these artificial beings had to therefore also be really involved with their bodies and with their bodies in the context of other people. So yeah, <laughs> um, I do still have like a doomsday mythology and it's also a doomsday mythology that's rampant in the book because it's uh, a post-apocalypse essentially because there have been a series of small apocalypses over the course of a couple centuries but people are still living and they are living in the context of each other you know it that's where a lot of this book came from I was really annoyed by a certain kind of um tech bro uh belief about the singularity which I thought was just so deeply misguided (laughs) Which is exactly what drew me to your book. <laughs> so, so there's a win right there. There's one reader you've, you've turned over. <laughs> um, no, and and it's it speaks to something too that when I was reading, um, you have these, uh, for lack of a better term, roles, um, you know, or terminology that people use to describe some of the roles, like archivist mm-hmm. um, or relic or even engine when we talk about the mechs. And it has a very unique view in the language perspective, right? It's not quite what we think of as human processing language. Like, I don't know that mm-hmm. many of us would think of calling something, you know, an engine if we're looking <laughs> at a, a mech, for example, right? Like, yeah. And so I think how you were just talking about the psychology of it really plays nicely into that because you're also, even with those words that you're choosing, um, showing that it's not just human processing language. It's this other that's overlaid, side-laid <laughs> with the <Yeah>. human. <laughs> yeah. Um, I get into trouble, actually, with my agent and my editors with, like, trying to use words that I think are evocative of the thing. And they're like, no one's going to know what this means. Because the mechs weren't originally called engines. And that is an acronym that I'm currently trying to find on my computer, but it's like encapsulated network of integrated something, something, something. Um, but like, uh, yeah, I just, there, there's this bit in the book that I enjoy because it's kind of indicative of the kind of thing I like to do where, um, Early on, a character is considering what the word archivist generally implies in different languages in this world, where uh, in it's implied that in the standard language that everyone's communicating in, archivist means what you or I would consider archivist means in English, like someone who is in charge 
of keeping records and uh, maintaining them and create like categorizing them in ways that can be preserved and resource uh, referenced by future generations. But the word in his native language has more implications of being like an internal organ. And like, what does that mean? <laughs> That's weird. Like, but playing with language and the things that, uh, the words that are used to refer to things is something that I'm generally pretty interested in. And well, and I love that you say that too, because I, I don't know if this was just in the, in the advanced reader copy that I had, um, but kind of that uh, glossary of characters is in the yeah. front. And I was reading through it and I thought, wow. This is uh, this is going to be a ride because <laughs> at that point you you don't know it's like uh, the sovereign an engine I'm like I don't know what that is um, <laughs> you know an autonomous <laughs> intelligence and then there are all these like possibly we don't know its names there are just asterisks and asterisks it's like uh-huh. in the mountains beyond I'm like oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I've <laughs> just tried to describe archive before as like science fiction dressed up in the language of fantasy <laughs> because yeah. Uh, yeah, no, go keep continue yeah. with that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's at, for a while I was trying to describe it as science fantasy and people were like, no, it's sci-fi. I'm like, I guess, but I really don't care about how any of this works. It works because I say it does. And it's always kind of fantastical. <laughs> Uh, and like there, there's certainly characters in this story who themselves have very like, maybe not pronounced, but deeply held religious feeling. Like they are capable of a kind of spiritual awe. And for them, it emerges often, not just in places of like human action or capacity or performance, but also in what these strange sometimes dead entities are doing in the landscape and in the world. Um, but yeah, no, like <laughs> it's, it's some weird stuff. And uh, I guess the language reflects it because in part, I'm afraid of having to describe physics. So I don't. <laughs> uh, and in my opinion, that makes it fairly fantastical. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a time and place for hard science fiction. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's that's actually really interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way. I was just kind of living and breathing in this, you know, science fiction world. But you do definitely have these religious elements, even in terms of, you know, how, you know, the AIs who ran the city state were thought of as deities. And there's all of this kind of religious iconography that we run into, or even, you know, language. We have, you know, shrines in the cities. We have this beautiful kind of um, poetry of the lay, which are like fables um, used to teach lessons. And of course, like any good fable has uh, different interpretations depending upon who you talk to. But it's really interesting because it never feels like that, you know, religious element or that kind of um, spiritual element is is taking away from the science part. So I think you've walked a really interesting balance between this is very much 
some type of science. You don't you don't have to explain it, but some type of science based world. Um, but then this very spiritual component that comes out all over the place in the in the world itself, in the characters, um, which we're about to delve into in a few minutes. Um, uh-huh. But it's just how they how they merge together that works really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I knew when I wanted these entities to be like unto, you know, I call them functionally gods because they act with impunity because of the degree of the power they have. Um, but I also knew that I wanted there to be a religion that pre-existed them uh, and that, you know, they would have their own feelings about, you know, some of the AI we meet seem to be fairly religious unto themselves. Um there's an AI that I'm not sure I'm ever going to manage to like properly work into um, the story. So I feel like I can just talk about them. But the idea was that they at some point declare that like, oh yeah, I am the reincarnation of this particular like abbot. So I am the head of this sect now. And people have a lot of divided feelings about robot Pope. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's coming from a very sincere articulation of uh, personal faith for that AI. Or is it? I don't know. Um, you know, is it just a power grab? Uh, who can say other than that entity unto itself? That's true. Because who knows if they're, you know, acting with impunity, what is the reasoning of right? <laughs> a functional God? Is it just, just to see what it's like? Just to say you did it? Just to- Yeah. Well, you can't know. And you can try to have an interpersonal relationship that gives you access to that knowledge. But that degree of power discrepancy is very difficult to navigate <laughs> as is a sort of recurring element in this book. Yeah, I would say so, which is, it's actually, it's, it's fascinating that you just said it that way. So I, I am always sensitive or aware, maybe aware, aware is a good word, um, for issues of consent, for example. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot in this book with these characters who in less deft hands would feel not great from a consent perspective. <laughs> oh, uh, it's so it messy on the consent <laughs> level. There's so many problems going on. And so lots of people have lots of different feelings about what is going on in, in this book. Um, and when, when I say people, I mean characters, but I'm sure people are also going to have their own um, relationships with it. And I encourage them to, because I was very deliberately playing in that territory. Um, and uh, yeah, it just gets messier the whole way down. It does. I, I, I agree. So let's start. Let's start with our protagonist. Let's start yeah. with our main protagonist, uh, Sune, uh, yeah. who is essentially, I don't know. No. Uh, how would you describe Sune? Let's start with that. Uh, Feelings-wise or his his condition in the world? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, wait. Um, okay. So here's a person who we meet him, and one of the first notes that my editor makes is, ah, yes, this is what they call a disaster queer. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, we meet him after um, he's... The, the way that he's making himself his way through the world is by essentially being a scout through the wilds between uh, surviving city-states where 
some of the remnants of these dead gods are essentially very large feral robots. Uh, and they're more like Jurassic Park dinosaurs than they are anything else. If they see you, they very may very well may step on you on purpose. <laughs> and so finding safe routes between places through the wild is you know, rather important. And Sunai does this work because he can't stay in any one place for long without fear of being found by the harbor, who are those people who take the remains of these dead robot gods and turn them into mechs. Uh, but also because his emotional state is not great and he is usually either uh, doing hard substance use, having reckless one-night stand uh, sexual engagements, or wandering through the wilderness with all these enormous feral robots finding safe routes for other people. And he does this with a measure of his own impunity because Sunai is incapable of dying. Uh, he can get hurt. He can be wounded. Uh, he is hurt in a number of ways through the book, and it's implied he's been hurt in a number of ways before it, even been killed. But his body always seems to fix itself, and at some point he always gets up again. So, you know, for him, wandering through these dangerous places is a matter of well, why not? <laughs> I can do it. Um, and it would probably be much harder for someone else to do this. And if I do it this way, then other people are less at risk. So uh, this is the character we meet at the beginning of the book. This is Sunai. And uh, also when he we meet him, he receives a letter that is so emotionally upsetting to him that he has to not engage in it by immediately finding the most distractions that he can, either, again, by substance use and sex, or by signing up for a very strange, probably dangerous journey into the wilds. <laughs> I feel like that's like the opening, a great yeah. opening scene setting. <laughs> um, I also think, too, it's, you know, Sune is... is broken in so many mm -hmm. ways and this idea too that we we come to learn that he was part of um i would say a close inner circle maybe of iterate fractal um mm -hmm. one of these dead now dead ai gods and mm -hmm. had experienced um the actual death of that ai god and and that the toll that it kind of took on him in his own coming to terms with how he felt um mm -hmm about that particular time, as well as kind of that iterate fractals uh, reach and influence over the city-state, mm -hmm. um, which just makes it even all the more messy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, when we talk about consent issues, iterate fractal is the center of a lot of them. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that is fair, <laughs> is a very fair point. Yeah, uh, I God, just today I put up this little jokey thing on Instagram. I have so many jokes I want to make on the internet that I can't because they're spoilers. But if you want like a little more of a hint of <laughs> what's going on with that, I, I made a post that's um, it's technically a formal apology from Iterate Fractal to Sunai, but I don't think people will find it very apologetic. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so what were we 
are we even talking about? Um, <laughs> we're, we're talking about poor Sunai. <laughs> poor Sunai. Yeah. So he like, and I think I, I'm very curious to know how early on a reader catches on to this because I don't think it's explicitly revealed until a little further in. So spoiler warnings, maybe tap out around now or maybe a little earlier <laughs> if we can retroactively add spoiler warnings. They're but, gentle spoilers. Yeah. Right. So Sunai, right. Okay. You know what? We call him a pilot priest in the promo material. So why not? Um, Sunai was very close with Iterate Fractal. It was one of its archivists, which we mentioned earlier, which are individuals that Iterate Fractal chose for reasons that are not necessarily clear, but to be an extension of itself in its city, to be both counselors and essentially monks and priests, and also keepers of its own body. Um, And Sunai was one of these people, and he was very closely integrated with Iterate Fractal at the time of its violent death, (laughs) which was let's say traumatic. Uh, you know, uh, here's, here's something that I've been sharing because it's true. And it's, I don't know, for me, it's funny, but I wrote this book in 2017 when I was coming off of uh, essentially my second round of major treatment for some like incredibly catastrophic illness I'd experienced in 2012. And catastrophic is actually the clinical term. So that's how serious it was. But in 2017, I was experiencing like essentially some pretty major setbacks that involved major surgery. And that was around the time I started writing Archive. And it wasn't until like two or three drafts in that I went, oh, this is a book about recovery. (laughs) But uh, yeah, like it's so obvious now to me when I'm looking at it now and I'm looking at the state Sunai is in at the beginning of the book where he's in a body that cannot be killed in any meaningful way, but he is very, as you say, broken, very hurt, very like wounded in all these ways that he either refuses to recognize or does recognize and refuses to address because doing so feels like it will only deepen the pain in some way. Um, Welcome to your protagonist. <laughs> I, I hope you have fun. He's at least funny about it. He is at least funny about it. And, and there are some really great sex scenes. So if you, know, you just need to like lighten the load a little bit, it's not too much. It's just yeah. enough. <laughs> I don't want it to, you know, I don't want you to think yeah. you're reading that kind of book. But if you need yeah. a little break, there is some. Yeah. You know, my editor was was really like, he, you have to like give them a little bit, like just let them let them have fun. I was like, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but but then it's sad because then there comes a point. Yeah, you know, there's a point. I won't yeah. say how long it lasts yeah. or if it lasts forever. We don't know. Um, where they don't get to have fun, and I I it's, feel sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the reverse slow burn, except. Uh, um, I don't know Uh, keep in mind that my wife is a huge shipper and I write for her so 
there will be payoff eventually. There's always payoff eventually, but I just have to make her suffer first. (laughs) That's the promo for the next books. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm enjoying that. I'm having fun. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. No worries. Um, But no, I I did get a little sad when there was like a little pause and some of that fun between our main Mm -hmm. characters. And so then that brings us to another, um, Another character yes. who may or may not be broken. Um, yeah. uh, it is the doctor, uh, Veyadi. Yeah. Yes, Veyadi. Who comes in as kind of this mysterious benefactor, one night uh-huh. stand scientist. Uh-huh. <laughs> Moody. Yeah. He yeah. checks all those boxes. Uh-huh. And just god that poor man (laughs) he's um he's my current narrating protagonist and uh being inside his head I just like I want to wrap him in a blanket all the time and I'm like nope (laughs) no blankets for you right now only suffering blankets later (laughs) wow I love how you're like haha suffering yeah um my my writing group the other day like I was describing something that I was gonna do in this book and I guess the gleam in my eye had them going yep Emma's excited (laughs) Um, the way she giggles when she says this one's gonna hurt (laughs) wow (laughs) just when you say it like that I feel it I don't even know what you're doing um yeah so Viotti, Viotti comes off as like when we first meet him, you know, he he seems like he's going to be this rock of a kind in the context of, you know, we meet Sunai and he's instantly like, okay, this person needs someone to, you know, smack his hand away from hurting himself again. And Viotti looks like he's poised to do that and in fact that he has instantly recognized that Tsunai desperately wants to throw himself into danger and that Feyadi does not want him to do that <laughs> that seems inadvisable why why would you do that again but um their relationship is quickly complicated by Tsunai realizing oh okay this guy seems nice and that in itself can be kind of a complicating factor to me because when people are nice to me, they stop me from doing all the things that distract me from all of the problems I have. And then they start asking me to address my problems. And I don't want either of those things. But the bigger problem is that Veyadi seems to be somewhat involved with the harbor, which is that, again, that group of people who take the dead AI gods and turn them into these mechs these people who are hunting for Sunai because they want to use him to pilot one of these mechs. And so hanging around Viadi is therefore a deeply bad idea. But there's just something about what this guy seems to be looking for that's so fascinating. And worse than that, Sunai almost starts to take a kind of pity on this guy because for all he seems to like project this air of being in control of himself in his life he seems very critically lonely in a lot of small ways that Sunai is geared to notice uh, because of that life he lived as one of those uh, therapists. <laughs> so 
so there's this is where the relationship begins with one person who prone to throwing themselves into problems noticing that the one person trying to hold them back from throwing themselves into more maybe has more of their own problems than he's willing to admit uh, and it, it's that initial instinct toward care in both of them that I was most interested in teasing at throughout the book. And I think that comes through with a lot of your characters, the complexity of their pain and their Mm -hmm. drama and their offness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the The complexity, but also just, you know, how deeply, you know, compassionate they are, uh, to people even they don't necessarily know and how empathetic they can be even when they're in this place of, you know, pain or loss or um, self-sabotage. Yeah. (laughs) Which Which is beautiful because I do think that we're not caricatures of those emotions. So you've, you've got all of these different characters with all of these different ways that make them unique and also just very real. Yeah, that um, the tendency toward care was, again, it's actually an articulation of, oh, this is a recovery book, because I'm, I was thinking through a lot of things about how my own survival came about, which is, you know, a consequence of certainly my doctors, but in huge part because of my family and my wife. And, you know, all the friends who ever took time out of their lives to hang out with me when I was thoroughly decrepit at 25. (laughs) But uh, that I wanted this to be a world where people had this advanced cultural understanding of and compulsion toward care for people and their basic frailties. And I think that was a little bit in part because I was trying to write toward part of the experience of growing up here in Hawaii, which I at times call a small town cosplaying as a state because, uh, you know, we're, we are an island <laughs> and you, you have to look out for your own on the island because you're what you've got and your own in this context is basically everybody, uh, not least because if you're kind of rude or kind of a dick, there's a non-zero trance your grandma's going to hear about it. <laughs> I mean, that's so, fair. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a fair assessment. Uh, my aunt lived in the U.S. Virgin Islands for a little bit, and that uh-huh. is, that's a fair assessment. When you're on an island, people people know, even before you get back home, people know. Yeah, you know, it's it's that six degrees, but you can play it between literally any given person on the island, and it's more like four degrees <laughs> at most. <laughs> well, and I think that's, and, and I love that you say that too, because you're right, it's not just in your characters, it is in this world. Um, there are, are points where they're in... Um, in kind of like a, a caravan moving between the city states. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this great kind of like barter culture um, among these different um, ships or 
mm-hmm. machines who are traveling. And then when mm-hmm. we get to um, Cuomo, also there too, where they aren't necessarily, the harbor doesn't have a heavy hand in the city state, although they, they'd, they'd like to. Um, there's also this, you know, looking out for each other within um, Cuomo of, you know, just keeping an eye out for each other. Even if you're a stranger, they can kind of tell if maybe you are from here or um, mm-hmm. have some type of connection. So it plays out even in these like little moments of of place that you've put into the book as well. Yeah, and that was, you know, pretty intentional. I was thinking about these things, uh, or, or at least part of it was intentional because, as I said, I didn't know it was a book based, at least in part, in caregiving until I was several drafts in, but I did always know that I was trying to evoke something about home, about Hawaii, so... Beautiful. So in direct conflict to that, this is a very brutal world. (laughs) It can be, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we're making it sound so nice and lovely, but it's actually very brutal. Um, This kind of dictatorship of the harbor um, Mm. and the use. (laughs) Oh, there we go. That's what I'm looking for. The The authoritarian harbor, but it isn't just that it's that they've have, you know, these mechs who are, are also very brutal in how they, um, handle anything really, mm-hmm. <laughs> any interaction with any citizen <laughs> regarding anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> there is no, just like, let's have a conversation. <laughs> it's like, nope. I will smash you with this giant mech. And you're like, okay. Yeah. Uh, so what, what was the, the inspiration for that? Just, you know, so much, like there is no room for compromise essentially, um, with the Harbor because every interaction is just amped up. Um, so for this, against this world where the people are very caring, how did you kind of come up with this idea of brutality in the ruling? Well, Let's talk a little bit about Japan. Um, So I'm fourth generation Japanese. And um, part of that for me has involved grappling with the different elements of Japanese history, both in Japan and uh, for Japanese Americans. And so, you know, my family has its own specific relationship with internment because uh, they were in Hawaii where they whether for compassion or capitalistic reasons, a bunch of white businessmen were like, hey, America, you cannot intern literally every Japanese person in Hawaii. It's just logistically unsound and also your economy will be in shambles. Um, So what they did instead was they interned the educated men and the community community leaders, which both of which applied to my great grandfather, but, And simultaneously, like my grandfather, who was about to marry that man's oldest daughter, served as a translator in the U.S. Army. But all that aside, simultaneously, Japan was being an empire in its own right because its reaction to Western empire was kind of like, oh, we don't want that. So we're going to be it. And 
Japan committed incredible brutalities against China, against the Philippines, in Indonesia, all up and down, you know, the East Asian seaboard and down into Southeast Asia. And this is a thing that I feel I kind of need to grapple with personally, because I think it's deeply tied into the way that Japanese culture as a literary and film tradition has grappled with violence in the aftermath because in the midst of all this violence that they are perpetrating they experience one of if not you know one of the greatest brutalities humanity has ever suffered twice in a row with atomic bombs so you get this population that's deeply deeply traumatized by violence it's suffered but is also responsible in some cultural regard for carrying the history of the brutalities it visited upon people. So you'll notice when you're reading Archive that the harbor and its original city-state, all of the language that it uses is very much like Japanese adjacent. Uh, It's called the Aigata Enclave. Like all the characters have very like Japanese-esque names. There's a character named Ueda Naru, which is just Japanese. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and like Mecca itself is, I think, a genre that's very much tied to this war trauma coming out of Japan in the aftermath of World War II. And so uh, that's that's what the harbor is, right? It's this group of people who, and they're, they're fairly new in this world. They're only like 50 years old or so, younger than that. But they, after suffering one of these corruption events where their AI dies in a terrible way, decide we can never trust these entities again. And they build out of its remains machines by which they can protect themselves from the wild robots roaming about and from any AI that might want to claim its citizens for itself. Because as we've noted, these AIs are very social, very possessive, and they love to add new people to their collections. Um, and the harbor is terrified of that. So their authoritarian impulses both come from an entrenched culture of violence and protection. And also because, yeah, no, well, it starts with that that need to protect, but then any culture that cleaves toward uh, othering other entities of any variety is going to trend towards authoritarianism eventually. And certainly we have in this moment a very authoritarian harbor. Absolutely. If they're using the shells of the, the fallen gods as part of those protecting machines or protecting mechs, yeah, that is yeah. a little dark. Yeah, I mean, they're doing it because uh, from their perspective, it was a matter of like, how do we, how do we survive this? How do we protect ourselves both from the the rabid AI, the rabid fragments wandering the landscape and from any AI that may want us to go through this again? (laughs) Yeah. And then just against that with, you know, rabid AI and rabid fragments, you, you throw in these these little one-offs, and we've already talked about it too, this idea of um, you know, the emotional 
uh, components of what mm-hmm. AI might look like if they are interacting with us. But then there's this great little moment where they're talking about company cats yeah. um, and they're out in the wild and it's this great, just tiny little vignette of, yeah, we tell the tourists not to go like to the company cats and they've stopped and the company cats have stopped kidnapping people, but they're lonely. And so they'll, they'll kidnap a tourist, but it never really ends well for the tourist. It does not. Uh, the company cats are some of these chimeric beasts that were made by Iterate Fractal. They're part uh, big cat, I would say, part monkey. So they're they're hand cats. <laughs> As uh, they, they used to have a slightly larger role in the book, and I'm hoping to bring them back more in book two because I'm very fond of them. But they were engineered essentially, you know, to be helper animals in the city that Iterate Fractal had grown. And they were there, you know, as companies suggest, to provide social bonds and social comfort and also to like remind you to take your meds <laughs> and have you eaten today? The cat is going to like try and make you eat. Um, and so they are compelled by their nature to be close to humans and to be helping them out. But because they are also altered by this corruption that's in their brains now that's in their bodies and their being i i would not trust a company cat or one to approach me and and nor should you nor should you (laughs) it's this it's this beautiful moment right of like they're lonely and they want to fulfill what they were created to do but they can't because they nope And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, company cat. <laughs> yeah. At least uh, they seem to be hanging out with each other, right? <laughs> right. They're not completely alone. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. They, found, they found other fragmented creatures. Yeah. Uh, well, I do want to, we're coming to a, a close, but I do want to talk a little bit because we have this great um little conversation ahead of the recording where we were talking about the pronunciation of the names of characters and places in this book. And you had this great insight um, into uh, how you think of these words and these names as you write them. And I was wondering if you just kind of share that so people can also have this in their heads as they're reading. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, this is, as official as it gets, it's the information I gave to the uh, performer who is narrating the book. But uh, the rule of thumb, I would say, is that every vowel you see in the words that I make up is probably following the pronunciation of vowels in Japanese, which is coincidentally the same vowel pronunciations that exist in Hawaiian and linguists are absolutely fascinated by this connection. So I encourage you to look into that, but it is a is a, I is e, e is e, u is u and o is o. So a, e, u, e, o. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Now I have to reread it. And first I have to write that down and then, yeah. <laughs> and then oh, I yeah, have to reread. Yeah. Like, you can go on the internet, you'll find um, pronunciation guides, like Japanese, again, wonderful economy of vowels, a-i-u-e-o, uh, Hawaiian, also gorgeous flow, a-i-u-e-o. <laughs> so it's, it's very consistent. <laughs> 
that's beautiful, wonderful, um, and just such a great mix too of a lot of what we were talking about too with all of these, you know, American, Hawaiian, you know, Asian, uh, Japanese influences in this book. So I think that having that, even that um, that bridge between the two vowels is really fascinating. It just ties it all together. Yeah, I, I do want to like just make one note because I'm sure that this is going to happen a lot and I'm going to be clarifying it a lot. So I'm just, you know, offering it here. I am living in Hawaii. I am a settler in Hawaii. I am not Hawaiian by any means. Hawaiian is someone uh, who is a native Hawaiian. So uh, I am local to Hawaii, but I am not of Hawaii. And so part of my efforts to respect that fact and to lend whatever I can to its nurturing and protection is to one, articulate that and to, you know, there, there's elements in uh, this book that are analogous to Hawaii, but there are elements that are not. Um, and I would say the way that there's sort of an analog to people who feel more connected to this world as in they are from it, the people of the down world, it's not, I would say, analogous to Native stuff, though it may seem that way at times. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to make that note because it feels important, given the conversation. Oh, so that's abso- it. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, the more that we can be, at, and you might experience this, so I'm mm-hmm. Vietnamese-American, uh, mm. and the more that we can call out the specificity and be respectful. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of times when we talk about Asian-American, it's it's yeah. so an like, Asian-American <laughs> Pacific Islander yeah. uh, <laughs> month that we're in uh, recording yeah. this in. <laughs> Shout out to to all of us out there. Um, But the the details do matter. And I think Mm -hmm. being respectful and calling that out, I think that's perfect. And I think that's wonderful that you're taking it upon yourself to be very clear and open about that. So kudos to you. It's setting such a good example for everyone else. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) More shining lights, more examples. That's what we need. So so on that lovely note, um, I've been speaking with Emma Mieko Kandon, author of The Archive Undying, which comes out June 27th. 2023 from tour.com. If you've enjoyed today's chat, I invite you to subscribe to be the first to know uh, about new books in science fiction. I'm Brendan Wesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening and take care.